Welcome, everyone, to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so committed to having a clean car that he gets it washed every week. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Am I in the right room? Daredevil episode 105, World on Fire, is brought to us by the Kitchen Car Wash and Shop Shop. Stains, blood, brains, whatever you get on your vehicle, bring it on down and we'll hose it right off. Are we surprised that they're involved with hoses? We are not. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Artiz begins in the shower and Claire looks in the mirror at her reflection. Her left lower lip and her right eye draw your attention to that as a recurring motif throughout the five episodes of this season we've podcast so far are banged up and uh, Matt is in the kitchen where she shows up in her robe, asks her if she cooks for every girl she brings home, just the ones who keep him alive. He says, um, she wants to know if he has a job or are you one of those billionaire playboys that she hears all about? And she break, I'm sorry. He breaks the truth to her and she thought she had lucked out. He is a lawyer with a practice, but he's his own boss. So the lawyer by day, vigilante by night thing, how's that working out? Um, we get our seventh S word of the series, Matt, in an episode chock full of them. But it's at this point that he can smell that she has opened one of the cuts on her back again. He can taste the copper in his, uh, in his mouth in the air. And we get a sound as he puts his hand on her back. The swelling's gone down. She has a rib fracture. It's only a hairline though. Okay. She wants to know about the x-ray fingers and everything else. It's, it's such nuance in this opening scene here, uh, whether it's the slow reveal of her injuries at the very beginning of it. First, she looks okay. She draws the hair back, and, and then the injuries come into, into view. Uh, that little reference to the billionaire playboy, yes, it's a little yuck-yuck thing, Iron Man. But it's also the world that they live in where aren't heroic people all billionaire playboys or, or you know, former world war ii soldiers or that kind of thing you know it's the world that they live in right um and even even the way that you know the the subtle way in which his powers are are shown to us uh or even how he explains it just through dialogue it's you know none of this cgi mumbo jumbo from the film uh, as we keep pointing out it's just it's just nuance and, and massaged out of the story for we the audience you know, these other senses, balance, direction, micro changes in air density, vibrations, um, blankets of temperature vir- variations, all this, it really gives an effective understanding of what it is he sees. Bring that in with the, the smells and his hearing, and he describes it as an impressionistic painting and here playing off those um, impressionistic painting um, preferences of the kingpin in um, uh, 
Wilson Fisk, but he says that, you know, this looks like the world on fire to him. And it's the first time in the series we've gotten an effect. He sees Claire with, with that special effect there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's effective. It really is. And I don't, I don't mean to keep going back to the film, but in the film where it was difficult for we, the sighted people, to to interpret what he was actually seeing. That's not the case here. The the swirls and the shapes and the bits and pieces move slow enough so you get that impression of a head. There are some eyes. No, now the eyes are gone. There, there are the features of the face. And it just makes sense that he can both see but not be sighted in the way that we are, be seeing more and be seeing less. And for as long as they hold that shot, which might be all of two seconds, it's just, oh, okay, now I understand exactly how, how this works for him. And frankly, we might not go back to that view for the rest of the season. It's just enough to say, here's what it is. And now it sticks with us. And and we move on from there. And he tells Claire here that uh, he needs her to move in until he can stop the Russians. Um, she remarks that it's a hell of a way to to get a girl to move in. But it's worked. And then the romantic tension through the three episodes they've been around one another is broken they kiss um you know he uh says he's been a little bit busy uh to do this but he's gonna get her some clothes um she asks him about going to the police but the whole wearing a mask and beating on people doesn't exactly mesh with police policy something that comes much like the world on fire idea um full circle by the end of this episode but she's worried he's going to wind up in another dumpster when he first moves in to kiss her i was initially kind of worried oh he's he's crossing a line here here she literally can't go home she can't leave this apartment it's a little creepy no 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 rosario dawson imbues into the character of claire uh certainly carnal instincts and the carnal reaction and it goes from you know whoa time out buddy are you crossing a line to no they both feel something and they feel something something very uh very profound and it's <laughs> you know i don't mean to turn this into you know the young and the restless but it's like all all of a sudden it works all of a sudden the screen is sizzling the screen is on fire and and i'll admit i was a bit surprised that that they would go in a romantic direction but uh but wow they have and i i buy it <laughs> um, she asks him what he's going to do about Fisk and he says that if you cut off the head of the snake the body dies a little bit of a variation on something uh, we say on the Age of the Shield podcast there with, uh, with Hydra um, but she wonders aloud how do you know he's the head and brings up the murder in the bowling alley Mr. Prohaska um, and that there's a majority ownership change in the kitchen cabs. Uh, so all this tying back to Fisk, and they think that Fisk hired the man who killed Prohaska, but nobody's talking. Um, even having heard that name, Claire heard another name, um, Vladimir. And uh, with that, uh, we move on to uh, Wesley seeing Vladimir, um certainly a, a a fitting transition there um love again uh, you know sometimes i worry i'm reusing words too much but but when there's um when there's a flavor to an episode you must you know you must 
mention that flavor so subtle here wesley's this attitude hey man where's your bro where's where is he that's weird the last time i saw him he was so happy must be out you know with maybe a girl maybe a guy where is he that little that little whippersnapper you know it's just it's so underplayed we're in on it and, and there's just enough of a enough of a wink enough of a twinkle in wesley's eye where you know uh <laughs> we're reminded that we're walking a very very fine line here Wah, wah, that I come at a bad time. I love the line, you know, is he out celebrating with a girl or a guy? <laughs> you know, he insults his brother's honor to his face. And, you know, that's where I feel these Russians, they're effective through these first five episodes, but I feel a little one-dimensional coming this way around and and you know with what goes on in this episode i suppose they have to be um but you know when he's he's calling his brother he's not hearing back and you know oh we we made the deal wesley tells him everything there you know that anatoly is missing ups this okay and then um when a guy shows up with uh yep you guessed it blood near his right eye Okay, um, on his cheek, they found Anatoly. They bring him here on the table, and um, you know he's missing his head. The way in which um, that scene—not when when the baddie comes in, but when there's the reveal of the body, which of course we had seen previously—but the way that 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 portion of the scene is blocked, the way the ar- the actors are placed by the director, I thought was perfect because we know we're going to see something pretty ghastly. Um, but Anatoly's body is initially blocked by the goons. Then they move out of the way. His half-headless body revealed, and, and uh, you know, an initial shock to us. But of course, we've seen it, and there's just a quiet sadness to it all. Um, certainly, you know, kind of the, the the final note of his brutal end. So, with all this out there, uh, Vladimir tells one of his associates, "Put every man on the street to find this masked man." having received the message there of the cloth inside his jacket, uh, and then bring me his head. Super fun way to end the, uh, to end the teaser act. Act one begins with that car and blood being hosed off of it and down the drain there in a garage and Mr. Leland in there. And, uh, Madam Gao, as well as Mr. Nobu. And the most effective thing in this scene was the use of characters who, for the most part, don't speak English and the punctuating laughter of Madam Gao. Absolutely. That that wild cackling was just, I mean, it, it's laughing at the chaos, laughing at the evil, and and it makes her and everyone else all the more evil when you're laughing at such awful things. So by the time Wesley is out of an Escalade and then Fisk shows himself and meets up with this group, Leland's wondered why they aren't meeting in the usual place. Fisk's presence makes this all the more important. But it's an opportunity, he says, for those willing to seize it. Um, Wes translates for uh, Fisk and explains that Madame Gao is happy to see you. Uh, and he apologizes for having been absent of late. We know why in his courtship of the 
lovely but uh, evasive Vanessa um, and that he's called on them here with little notice. Leland refers to the Russian brothers as the Smiley Twins <laughs> and uh, that they must be sleeping off another kidnapping here. And Fisk uses their name for the first time. The Ransakovs, they're no longer part of this organization, which is news to everybody there. Also, by their, by their reaction, by the momentary chaos, it's a wonderful illustration of something that had been bubbling a bit in this scene, but I don't think had been clear in previous episodes, which is, uh, yes, Fisk is, of course, the uh, kingpin of all of this, but it really is a consortium. It really is a group of like-minded people, albeit baddies, working together across their their various interests and skills. Um, Again, that's not breaking news, but it, it had not, I think, been as codified as it was where... He's the head man, but all of a sudden, oh, you know, hey, how's Madame Gal going to react to this? We have to, we have to massage her, uh, her ego here. Oh, how about the? Okay, well, this one bunch doesn't work, but do the rest of us now take their, take their money and chop it up? And just, just this idea that they're bound together, but could go, could go bursting in different directions. Well, Fisk is the head man, all right, having just removed Anatolis. That this was done without consultation is what upsets the other parties of this council, if you will. Um, And Leland wants to know what happens now and why did this happen? And that Fisk tells him it was a personal matter uh, makes it all the more layered. Um, But Vladimir, as Leland explains, is not a hug it out type of guy, but the masked man killed his brother at least that's what vladimir believes so this orchestration behind the scenes by this group puts everything in motion for this episode they will distract vladimir until preparations can be made they all knew the russians would need to be eliminated one day they're too unpredictable leland of course remarks this from the guy who's taking off heads with car doors (laughs) Part of that line about the Russians being too un- unpredictable, that's where I kind of excuse the excuse the notion that the Russians uh, are at this point in the episode and were once you complete the episode uh, one dimensional just because it seems like their peers are saying that these guys are awfully one note, that they're just out there kind of being wild hooligans and don't have the the finesse of everyone else there assembled. So, again, does it completely excuse what perhaps might be a, a weaker point in the story? Maybe not, but at least, at least they see it too. At least the other characters see the weakness of the Russian characters. Madame Gao wants to know how her product is going to be moved now with the, uh, the Russians being taken out of the mix. And Fisk tells her that they're going to be sending deliveries to the Russians to uh, give the appearance nothing has changed. Assume their responsibilities. But uh, there's the matter of their share going to Fisk, which seems to upset the group. Fisk tells them that a rising tide raises all boats that profits um, will go up in equal shares, not in five. And Gao and Nobu appear to agree. Leland being the holdout 
says he's not going to go against the three of them and he likes his head where it's at. And, you know, it's a dark moment. It's a funny moment. But it, it again hammers home that these are kind of uh, gentlemen and gentlewomen of the crime world. And, you know, they know that they're dancing on the edge of a razor. But the flip side is, you know, at least you could be pleasant about it and realize, hey, this isn't worth a fight. Otherwise, one of you may kill me right now. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a moment that serves many story masters. And it's great what Bob Gunton brings to this scene as, you know, our, our comic relief. He says, mass vigilantes, crazy Russians. I'm going to get my stun gun out of storage here as he's walking away. Mr. Nobu comes up to Fisk at the end of the meeting and he says, remember your promise to me and those I speak for. Um, certainly a loaded line that we don't have the payoff to just yet. And then when Fisk um, is left standing with Madame Gao, wants to bring her to her car that uh, she picks up through Wesley that she wants something. It's such a lovely touch, the, the giant hulking visage of Fisk uh, kindly walking this old and rather sandpaper-faced uh, Madame Gao uh, on. You know, again, there's just there's an elegance to these villains that, uh, that, that I think is, is so supportive of the overall point that, you know, whether it's elegant uh, big city lawyers, elegant big city developers, these are, these are actually the villains in this tale. And elegantly singing in Mandarin as the scene transitioned, we have one of Madame Gao's mules making a delivery um, in the backseat of a Veles taxi. And uh, the Russian up front wants him to shut up. But uh, Piotr, the driver, um, wants him to ask him about the man in the mask. Of course, he does not answer. Do any of these Gao runners know anything? Certainly a good question. And it's around this point in the scene, nay, in the shot, where you realize, hey, it's been a while since we have cut here. We went from the the runner singing to uh, to the guys up front and what is quickly unfolding to be a, about a three-minute uncut shot Again, a handful of episodes after the four or five or six minute uncut fight scene at the end of uh, the end of episode, uh, I believe it was the second episode. 102. Uh, yeah. 102. You know, like here we are, the show kind of quietly showing off. Yeah, we can do multiple episodes with lengthy takes. And the, the circular camera movement uh, first um, counterclockwise, then backwards clockwise as this man is still in the car singing they've taken a backpack from him and and walked it inside and as the two men reemerge from the door our masked man rolls out and takes them out two more men follow with guns very quickly uh our masked man ducks and the man in the back of the car gets capped blood everywhere <laughs> Initially, when when the mule was killed, I said, "Oh my goodness, this is going to you know cause cause discord within the uh, you know the different factions of of uh, Fisk's empire." Not realizing that they're almost kind of setting up the notion that these runners are are, are really 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 uh, disposable. But as our armed 
assailants look for the man in the mask. He rolls out from underneath the cab, takes out the one, throws an object at the other, jumps over the car and interrogates him about Vladimir. Um, he'll tell him what he wants. Just please don't cut off my head. Um, everybody knows you took his head. Sirens come a wailing. So do the cops. Uh, man in the mask up the wall and he listens while the Russian is taken in. The two have gotten away on foot. They have the dead drug mule there and they're bringing him back to the 15th precinct. Worth noting the uh, little writerly flourish here in the first uh, fight scene of the episode. Daredevil uh, has a Russian on the ground and uh, here's police coming and uh, gets out of there fast. Of course, the episode ending uh, with <laughs> with uh, a similar prospect, but a different ending to uh, to that scene. We cut to Karen in the office, whose newly purchased copier and auction is not working. Foggy uh, enters smiling, and he acknowledges in a little bit of a tip of the hat to the marvel uh flagship there with the avengers that um she should be nice to it for when the machines take over oh you know i had not caught that as a as a foreshadowy reference to other goings on in the mcu but uh excellent excellent catch there perhaps i was just a little uh a little distracted by the notion that he was uh watching uh watching her work from behind or is that watching (laughs) her behind well when the phones uh click He's also worried that this could be the machines plotting, but he doesn't speak computer overlord. <laughs> um, but it's not just the technology. The rats are chewing on the phones. They have an exterminator coming. There are real problems at this startup law firm, and uh, Karen is trying to deal with them. Uh, and Matt comes in. He wants to know if... They've heard about uh, a Russian with his head cut off. Foggy's all worried that amongst the muggings, they now have to worry about their melons. What's next? Groping corpses. And it's at just this moment that an elderly woman comes in looking for Senor Foggy Law. <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful bit of humor. Not overdone to the point that the character that we will uh, learn to be called is Mrs. Cardenas. Uh, not done to the point of of uh, you know extreme or the point of stereotype, but just a, a moment to smile and a moment to say you know. In addition to that, someone needs their help. Yes, a friend of Bess Mahoney, you know Sergeant Brett's mom with the cigar, Jones, uh, has referred Mrs. Cardenas and Karen translates in Spanish. Um, wants to know how they can help her. Uh, She explains to the law partners that her home is rent controlled by her landlord, Senor Tully. Um, And this is the Armand Tully that Foggy knows to be a bit of a sleazebag with buildings all over town. He's attempting to convert the apartments into condominiums. He has tried to buy them out. Uh, men came weeks ago and uh, they said they were workers. However, the work they did pretty much destroyed their apartments. 
know, Pete, I did have to wonder if uh, Armand Tully and all this goings on with real estate, if perhaps he was related uh, to uh, to the famed accountant Louis Tully, who in 1984 uh, suffered. Uh, uh, a paranormal event at his uh, his Central Park West uh, apartment building. All sorts of damage and whatnot. Maybe from there, kind of you know, got angry at the world of apartments and and rent control and high rises and that sort of thing. Well, that illusion was about as subtle, Matt, as a sledgehammer, which is one of the words that Matt Murdock knows in Spanish. Seems but he knows most been... of them, by the way. What's that? It seems he knows most of the words yes, in Spanish. Yes. Well, it's college, Matt. And, college. You know, Fog, Foggy knows Punjabi, at least he says he does, to impress Karen. But, um, you know, uh, Matt likes the ladies and he likes listening to Karen's voice. It doesn't get past that there is a woman in the scene who needs their help. She's gone to the policia, who have said this is a city issue. And... Um, they were offered $10,000 to give up their rent control and to vacate, but maybe Foggy speculates they can pressure for a better deal, but they don't want to leave. They don't want the money. They want to stay in their homes. This is at this point that Matt deploys a very long uh, Spanish phrase, and she sighs. She's thankful here. Gracias, gracias. By the way, Pete, this is uh, definitely referencing some uh, some particulars that have gone on in Hell's Kitchen, I think maybe in the 80s, perhaps the 70s, where there was a similar situation, um, a little bit less with you know the blind superhero. Um, but it, it, they're picking up on some real-life stuff here, you know, not worth getting into the, into the particulars, but the same idea of trying to, trying to get people out who have a right to stay there. And I thought it was a nice touch that, that the story was um, picking up on some real uh, Hell's Kitchen history. It's an old story in terms of a lot of urban landscapes, but that Foggy's name was used by Matt in this explanation, and he tells him that he's going to be calling Tully's lawyer, who was, of course is Landman and Zach. You know that Landman and Zach that they interned for before they went on their own. Um, Karen wants to know if they're looking to hire, and she ultimately gets to ride along with Foggy as they are going to check in and see what they can do. Matt, meanwhile, is going to check the precinct for complaints but watch out for those sharks there we'll get to them in a little bit i love that given that what's going to unfold while he's at the at the police station i love that they nonetheless get him in the police station of in a very believable very organic way um with this whole business of you go talk to landman and zach or you know the people at landman and zach i'll go talk to uh to, to the people at the police station, you know, give Sergeant Mahoney a different a different face to to dislike or or maybe a face that he can't say no to. And for what's about to unfold, it really, really is a nice nice bit of of uh, writing here. At the fifteenth pre- precinct, arresting officer Brett Mahoney uh, meets Matt Murdock again. Wants to know uh, how his. Uh, his mom's doing, and Brett reports that she smells like a stogie. 
even though Murdoch has told Foggy not to sneak her the cigars. <laughs> but Brett makes clear that she's a crafty old bird. She'd find a way anyway. Um, they, after exchanging pleasantries, of course, move on to the scum of Senor Tully. And uh, Brett promises to get him copies of the complaints. Matt goes and sits on a bench with a woman suspiciously with her head down. I thought we might head in that direction. Instead, he employs his super hearing and hears a Russian being interrogated, uh, the same Russian who escaped uh, into police custody from Matt the night before. Um, they're asking him if he had seen or that he had been seen with the dead Chinese illegal. So therefore, what can you tell us? And uh, this is Piotr here um, who also had the backpack full of drugs. We have a uh, African-American cop and a white cop. The African-American cop warns the um, accused here that he's facing uh, a one-way ticket to 30 years in uh, land he doesn't really want to wind up in, Matt. <laughs> indeed, or he might have old, to protect his posterior. Indeed, indeed. The old uh, prison love for the gluteus maximus. Is it a bit of a small world that Matt's there while, the, while Piotr is here? Yes, but again, um, you know, the fact that Matt got here so organically really does really does make it so that the fact that it's a coincidence and, and a rather large one is so incredibly believable that you're not paying attention to the fact that it's kind of not believable, you know. And when he finally gets around after some hesitation that if he gives a name, he can cut a deal here and he uses Fisk's name. There's a reaction shot and um, they want to know uh, what else he knows, but he'll tell everything for a deal. And the white cop scuffs, he uncuffs Piotr and then asks his partner, uh, whose turn is it? The African-American cop says it's yours. And uh, yeah, there's reference to a thing in the bodega. There was something that had taken place in the bodega earlier in this uh, season. And um, after the African-American cop treats us to our ninth S word of the young season in an episode where we pile them up, um, he takes one right across the face from the white cop and there's uh, yelling about having a gun, and then the white cop caps Piotr. What I like when we see Matt's reaction, of course it's shock, um, but the camera move that they do, it's a combination of the camera dollying back, and they've changed the frame rate, so it's, of course, in slow motion. Yep. I think the combination of doing the two makes, not even I think, fact, it makes the scene a bit jumpy. I suspect that that's likely unintentional, but it's something that absolutely works. It's jumpy and it's speaking to the chaos that's going on, the chaos that Matt has just borne witness to. We go to the um, robot baby clone offices of <laughs> Landman and Zach, uh, where they both negotiate. Uh, the sale of such devices and arrange for their adoption. 
Uh, Foggy Bear runs into a familiar uh, stacked blonde who we learn is uh, bucking for partner. This is Marcy Stahl, uh, who now works at Landman and Zack uh, since, you know, um, Murdoch and Nelson crashed and burned. But uh, amongst the jokes about Foggy's commitment issues, there's some business discussed here that wouldn't have taken long enough to get up the elevator to the offices upstairs. Marcy is part of the Landman and Zach team that will um, get their client, get uh, Tully the best possible deal and pave the way for these condominiums. Marcy makes it clear that Mrs. Carnitas um, <laughs> will take the deal. But Foggy shows um, a heck of a lot of spine here that, uh, you know, despite the mumbo jumbo about the criminal element and these supposed requested repairs and the building being full of junkies and drug dealers, that, uh, it's Marcy's obligation to get their clients to accept. And uh, the two options here, one of which being uh, Tully's uh, BS, 10, if you're counting at home, um, is really, uh, that's their responsibility. But uh, he wants to see her in court. They have all the leverage. And he tells Marcy that he will dismantle her from the top of her salon blowout to the bottom of her overpriced pumps. Take that. Really, really wonderful to see Foggy showing that he's a, he's a quality lawyer, something that the film went the opposite uh, direction on. Um, it's great to see here he is standing up for his client. Furthermore, Pete, and in any of our podcasts, we don't discuss our personal politics, but it repeats once again the politics of this series. Big lawyers, big corporations, big connected people out to screw the little guys. She knows that the law is not being served here, or at least the spirit of the law. But what does she care about? She can get partner by protecting her client, which I'm not ignorant to that lawyers have to protect their client, you know, even even if there's badness going on but she clearly is okay getting this you know lovely abuelita kicked out of kicked out of her rent control department because it's like a chance for everybody to make more money and it's the show again not being shy to to really hammer that point home of you know the the big corporation the big the man out to get us little guys and her response to foggy is that he would have killed it there uh that he never should have left and he tells her she never should have signed on. And as he and Karen are walking away, he explains that he used to date Marcy, you know, back when she had a soul. Great line. That, that's a line, boys and girls, that everybody just needs to file away and use at an appropriate moment at some point in the near future. We go to an Escalade where a call comes over and we hear that they are taking the statements of Blake and Hoffman are dirty cops. Don't know which is which at this point, however, um, and that Wesley explains the contacts in internal affairs are going to make this go away. But Fisk is concerned. He's worried that it's this time that they can't keep a lid on this forever. 
and uh, Wesley tells him that soon Vladimir won't have any colleagues to whisper any names to. Wonderful little line there. Absolutely great. And you know what else is wonderful, Matt? Anything that was made in 1975, like myself and Brunello, wow. Montalcino. <laughs> wow. Well, well, fair enough. You know what? In great art, we see ourselves. And Pete, I guess in this episode, you indeed see yourself. So with the wine as a personal favor, something that comes back a couple scenes later um, for Wilson Fisk, uh, Foggy and Karen show up at the apartment of Mrs. Cardenas. There are flickering lights in the hallway. There are scarred walls. She's using candles for light. And uh, it's not Senor Tali who is going to fix this, but rather uh, Karen and Foggy. You know, his father did own a hardware store 12 forevers ago, and um, his cousin does drywall, and Matt and Foggy recently fished an electrician out of the drunk tank who owes them a favor. And not just for Mrs. Cardenas, this is going to have her happen for the uh, neighbors as well. Pete, there's there's a story problem, or at least there could have been, when they were first putting together uh, where these uh, 13 episodes could go. And the problem is this. How interesting is Foggy going to be as the guy who doesn't know that, you know, Matt Murdock is a hero? Uh, in this scene, though, there's the notion that uh, not all heroes are super. And it's just great to see him saying he's going to help this woman. He's going to push up his sleeves and jump on in. And it's it's a wonderful moment for the character saying, you know, help in any way you can. We don't all need superpowers to make a difference. If that's not too cheesy a thing, but darn it. That's what the, that's what the, the episode is saying. That's what Foggy is saying. We head to an alley where one of our dirty cops uh, phone buzzes and suddenly the masked man attacks him, uh, grabs a hold of his arm and uses that as his leverage, <laughs> um, confronts him about the Russian that he killed uh, for using the name and uh, that uh, the masked man had taken Anatoly's head off. So this is the urban legend that has been spread by Fisk's group. Um, but he wants to get at Vladimir. They don't know where he is. And Matt listens to the heartbeat here. He also asks how Fisk and the Russians are connected. Why did uh, Vladimir kill Prohaska for Fisk? He doesn't know. Um, and the cop reacts that he's uh, a stupid son of a bitch. And then he takes out his leg and knocks him out before he takes his phone. Though Daredevil appears to be uh, in control in this situation, I would argue that it's actually a scene about his, his lack of control or his lack of power. Uh, the cop knows more about the Fisk and Russian connection than does our hero. Also, Daredevil gets a phone that he cannot use. Uh, he's going to once he gets back to uh, gets back to Claire. But it's it's a it's a reminder, and, and the the show has done it before that Daredevil might be working his way up to you know up to the kingpin, up to the top, up to toppling all of this. Um, but there's a whole bunch that he doesn't know as this new uh, masked vigilante. 
So when we wind up in the next scene with Vanessa and Marcel, the Mater D, Fisk is all alone in the restaurant. Um, he didn't know whether she would show up, neither did she. But uh, though he said before he doesn't go in for grand gestures, this isn't one. He tells her he just doesn't want to be interrupted again. She wants to know that she has the freedom to walk and he tells her that he's prepared to dine alone. It wouldn't be the first time. It's a scene that has so much going on. Him alone in the restaurant is simultaneously sweet and troublesome. Um, the notion that he's prepared for both options, she's gonna, or for any option, she's going to uh, show up and stay. She's going to show up and leave. She's going to not show up. Well, he's prepared for that. I would dine alone, as you as you mentioned. Um, and then just the follow-up to that heartbreaking line, I, it wouldn't be the first time, and there's a slight look of pain on his face as he's aware that he's keeping people at arm's length. Um, the scene has, has all but started, and we have, we have a number of returns to uh, their dinner, but it's just so incredibly dynamic. Their scenes are so rich, both in terms of the detail and the dialogue. They really are something to watch, and it's at this point that she explains she's been lied to before by men, even decent men, um, and that dishonesty matters to her. Um, that uh, Wilson says he doesn't like to be in public and he doesn't like to be questioned. You're worried that maybe the anger is going to come to the surface here. Oh, yeah. But he, but he tells her that she can ask him anything that he will always be honest with her. So what do we start with? That uh, 1975 wine. Indeed. Can't go wrong with a Brunello di Montecino. To the tattooed hands of Vladimir cleaning his headless brother's body. Turk Barrett, our old buddy, comes in with another man, and he's, he's sorry, man. He's just sorry. But Sergei has told... Vladimir that Barrett knows something about the man who took your brother and uh, he brings up a guy who did a stretch in Rikers who owns a chop shop on the edge of the kitchen he cleaned an SUV yesterday the black back seat was spattered with blood and brains car belonged to a big white guy who was bald as our 11th S word um, <laughs> Fisk is brought up here and uh, that um, no name was used, but uh, that his boy heard Baldy say something about a man in a black mask. Sounds like him and the masked dude are tight and uh, that he works for Fisk. And Vladimir goes off that he's been playing them, Fisk has, that he's been planning this. He tells the other man in Russian to tell the men to put uh, everything um, pull everything back and to get ready. Guns, rifles, grenades, all of it, all of it. And to Barrett, he tells him to spread the word on the streets. I'm offering one million to find Bisk tonight. One million, twelfth S word. I'm on it. <laughs> uh, the the capper of the scene is the line uh, that Vladimir says, "I honor you, my brother, with the blood of war." And given that, that this war was predicted at the end of last episode, uh, and given where we know the episode ends up, 
the role that Turk plays in this scene seems totally in line with kind of the lower level uh, nature of the underworld that uh, Vladimir and the Russians seem to uh, to operate in, and Turk certainly operates in. Um, of course, a bit of a, a a bit of a writerly misdirect for the wonderful twists and turns to come. Definitely, and when we twist and turn under the sink of Mr. Mrs. Cardenas, Foggy is making miracles happen. He doesn't have the hot water on just yet, but it's enough that she feels gracious enough to reward them with some of her mother's Guatemalan cooking. Despite not having gas, she cooked it in the apartment downstairs because Matt, a key... We take care of one another. Yes. Yes. A lovely sentiment. A lovely sentiment. Um, and then there's something in Spanish that makes Karen understand that Mrs. Cardenas sees this as a date. Senor Foggy. Pete, we are up front not, not being super steeped in uh, the Daredevil comics. I know that uh, certainly in some of the storylines there is a, a Foggy and a Karen relationship. Uh, certainly I'm, you know, the, the, I'm picking up here the notion that they're on a date, uh, that they might be headed down that path. Although we'll check back on that path in a little bit because I'm not entirely sure. When we pick up, we're with Claire and, uh, she's examining the phone that Matt has taken from the cop. There was a text on it with a number of locations 47th and 12th 48th and 9th 42nd and 10th 44th and 11th and that last one was the address of the troika restaurant where he found they were holding the boy um it's a nice little mystery i mean i won't even go through the whole you know ooh, will they address it in this episode thing because clearly the show is going to you know even if you're watching it for the first time but just the notion hey there are these four locations Something is up with that. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice little um, notion that that there's trouble ahead. And there's trouble ahead in this scene because Claire wants to know what uh, Matt is going to do about this. You know, she said go to the police, but he's now taken this from the police. And he clarifies that these police are working for Fisk, um, but that he bets he's going to find Vladimir at one of these locations. Um, and we come back to their meeting together, ultimately winding up on the roof where, uh, he lied to the Russian and said he liked, uh, hurting them, which Claire did not believe, but, uh, she's worried that he's becoming that man. And he says that he needs to be the man this city needs, that he can't have the kitchen torn apart. And she tells him that she can't fall in love with somebody who's becoming so damn close to what he hates. And he says that she's right, that she shouldn't. Really an effective scene, not just for the relationship between the two of them, but also just this idea that he really is on the edge of right and wrong. No surprise there, given the nature of the character and whatnot. But it's just this nice acknowledgement that he he is playing with metaphorical fire. And, uh, of course, there's the real stuff later on in the episode. When we're back with Fisk and Vanessa, 
she is explaining about a prince who uh, was able to buy her love in a, uh, a white suit and an ascot, and um, she slept with him. And uh, that shocks Fisk, or at least she thinks it does. He looks away, and uh, he says that... Um, if he had known that early on, he might have said something like that, but he's glad that he didn't. He he references here not being shocked uh, in part because he assumed that she had lovers, and I really I really like this um, this notion that she's kind of upfront with saying, yeah, this pompous guy in the ascot came along and you know what what happened was sex and he using the word lovers it's an antiquated way of putting it but in a bit more of a modern sense it's suggestive of uh, of love and almost like he's not getting this notion that she was out there for a bedroom romp and nothing more and uh at least was in the past and it's almost news to him that that uh she could be looking for such things when he is looking for love but the wine is better than last time and he does not lie here, uh, not taking uh, her bait, uh, admitting that the assistant that Wesley picked it, but he's, for the first time, we explain more than an assistant, he's a friend. And she's um, shocked by the irony that a man who says he's lonely looking at the painting has friends. His painting, he's quick to point out with the ownership but uh why is he alone well it's the nature of his business um rebuilding the city he wants to carve something beautiful out of the ugliness and set free the potential she feels that makes him sound like an artist but he's a man with a dream just like she explains that artists are and the cufflinks come up again um, she wants to know if they are the only ones that he has because he was wearing them last time, but they were his father. So now we've mentioned both of his parents in uh, back-to-back episodes. He wears them every day to remember him, and um, he's since passed. Pete, there's an unevenness here to Fisk, not to D'Onofrio's performance, but but to Fisk himself. Um, when he says that Wesley is his friend, I think Fisk believes it, but there's kind of an inauthenticity to the situation. Um, also, his his notion here of you know making making the city beautiful out of its ugliness. Um, that too, it's kind of you know the the ends justify the means, which of course we know is not always the case. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, is he brilliant or is he insane? It's not, it's not quite as hackneyed, but it's just that notion of he's going so far in the one direction to loop around and get back to the beginning again. And, and does that work? Uh, is he a hero? Is he a villain? I, we can all suspect where things will end up, but the, the journey there remains so absolutely fantastic. Having been asked these questions now, uh, Fisk wants to ask Vanessa some and he feels that they've been earned. He wants to know what kind of gun it is in her purse. And she pauses before she tells him it's a twenty-two. Wants to know if she thought she'd need it for tonight. And uh, that they've been sitting and talking for hours that he would insult her like 
she has no idea what he really does. Um, you know, there's this feigned, uh, insult, but, uh, what he said about the city is what he feels true that money and influence, um, don't move things quick enough, uh, on the scale that he's trying to do it. It requires force and that she knows he's a dangerous man. That's why she brought the gun on a dinner date. Yeah. Wonderful line there. I know you're a dangerous man. That's why I brought a gun to dinner. No, no suffering fools here on Vanessa's part. No, you know, weak willed woman, even in the face of this incredibly powerful, incredibly dangerous man. Um, she's certainly holding her own, uh, in her own way. And, uh, Pete says that despite all of this, she wants a reason to stay. That he tells her he's done things he's not proud of is certainly not a surprise that he's going to hurt people, um, continue to hurt them. It's impossible uh, to avoid it with what he's trying to do. He doesn't take pleasure in it. And it seems to be the irony between him and Matt Murdock. But the city's not a caterpillar, he tells her, that can go into a cocoon and wake up a butterfly. A city crumbles, it fades. Um, sometimes it needs to die before it's reborn. And she wants to know if she still needs the gun. But he tells her that she is safest by his side. Um, so she slides the gun across. Fisk puts it in his suit pocket. And then we see Marcel in the background inaudibly making a phone call. Marcel's call, uh, I think, is meant to play in multiple ways. Uh, on first... Uh, at least, you know, on chronological viewing, I think the notion is that perhaps he was on the phone with the bodyguards that we assume are not too far away, but not present, unlike the uh, the first dinner that the, the couple had together. Um, so I certainly read it at that moment as Marcel, who had already been on the phone saying, oh, my goodness, there's a gun. Get get ready to get ready. Oh, oh you know what? After all, we don't need you. Um I think that's meant to be the implication until, of course, Pete, we get to the next scene. Yes, with uh, uh, Vladimir near the table, um, another uh, Russian lets him know that uh, they just got a call where Fisk is, and um, we cut to the man in the mask listening to this, and Vladimir tells them that no one touches Fisk, he's mine, and we get what has really become the classic shot of uh daredevil over the city there in the black costume certainly uh you know somewhat evocative say of of uh the batman uh, yep. presentations but um fair is fair there he is in the dark daredevil uh you know watching out and uh and keeping an eye most ironically on his city back with karen and foggy He's explaining about the time that he hid all of Matt's uh, furniture across the uh, the dorm hallway. Um, and Karen wishes she knew them back then, but he tells her that they're better now, that he's more dashing, even though she wants photographic proof. But uh, having dug a hole here uh, in the last five minutes, 
Um, Foggy tells her that he doesn't kiss on the first date. She wants to know about the meat grinder and the pencil skirt. <laughs> and uh, he tells her that she was different back then. Um, you know, not like Matt. Matt's always uh, with the wrong girl and, and this is rubbed off on him. She's very curious about Murdoch at this point. Does he date a lot? Well, not so much. Not for more than a month or two. Um, you know, the plus side is he touch a he touches a lot of pretty girls on their faces. What then unfolds is uh, I think serving many story masters. Karen wondering if Matt knows what she looks like. Uh, and uh, very quickly, Foggy doesn't want uh, to go down that path too much, lest uh, you know, lest Matt actually touch Karen's face and and whisk uh, whisk her away. But Karen says she wants Foggy to touch her face, and uh, with that, Pete, uh, things are starting to heat up a little bit. They are, you know, he's got this real gift, like a sexual rain man. Murdoch does, and. Um, Foggy, it's written well, not able to pick up that he's being hit on here and and given this access. Um, But uh, they're going to exchange the favor on one another just as we move to a a Chinese man with the cane, one of the delivery men for Madame Gao, (laughs) and uh, Murdoch is uh, tailing them inside the warehouse there are guns and uh vans and vladimir and another russian are uh talking about getting the um other locations notified as to making the hit on fisk um the blind gentleman has a very visible scar under his glasses by his right eye and uh certainly seems to be this shows code for something bad's going to happen. The other asks Vladimir if he knew about an expected delivery. And it's at that point that we know this is a setup. Um, The blind man holds up a detonator. And as Matt Murdock is beating up one of the Russians outside, simultaneously, the building explodes. Vladimir and Sergei just miss uh, although it's not clear till the scene after um, the carnage here, uh, Murdoch and the man battling outside are blown down the alley. Indeed, and hit by the door no less. I don't know if that was you know something that really happened or you know a computer effect or whatever, but it's bad enough that there's a fireball headed their way. Now they're hit by a you know hit by a heavy door, and what then unfolds is a little um, a little kind of. Uh, out of order, well, it appears out of order almost, but of course we'll learn that it's not. Uh, we cut to Foggy feeling Karen's face. By the way, Pete, interesting that you have the take there that she is giving the access to Foggy. I I can't disagree with evidence from the from the story, but I had kind of taken it as her wanting to um, learn more about Matt by way of Foggy. Um, I certainly, you know. I can't argue that Foggy's touching her face and she's asking him to do that, but I'd wondered if perhaps there's a, uh, you know, romantic uh, triangle ahead. Um, but as all this intimacy is occurring, Pete, there's another boom. There's more heat, and it's not just from the two of them. <laughs> there is. They get struck by what 
like you said, on first glance, seems like the shockwave from the first explosion, but it's actually a secondary one. Um, Mrs. Cardenas comes into the room. She's bleeding, and they need to stop that. Foggy, um, again, showing his heroic nature, has Karen stay with Mrs. Cardenas while he goes to see if there's anybody else who needs help. And then we see uh, another uh, explosion as Vanessa is looking out into Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Wilson asks her if she read about the boy who watched his father pulled from a car and beaten before that boy was taken. Um, the men in the city who did that will no longer infect it. And Vanessa thinks that this is a good thing. Um, but Wilson tells her they need to call it a night. He needs to get her home before the roads close. And Marcel comes over. Uh, the car is ready. One more thing. And as Fisk deliciously here reaches in for the pocket and what would be very easy to eliminate a, a loose thread and get him with the gun, he instead produces an envelope, a tip to thank him for the evening, especially thank him for the call that he just made. And uh, this whole time, what's what's in the background, the, those burning buildings, the multiple explosions from multiple locations, and it kind of being made very clear to the audience, oh, those were the four addresses. Those were, as it was made clear earlier, the uh, the four Russians uh, locate the, the four locations for the Russians, and it really is this notion. Oh my goodness, they've just removed apparently at this point in the story every single Russian from the equation. Uh, Murdoch removes the man he was fighting with um, in the rubble and uh, Vladimir and Sergei move off uh, from the explosion as well. We go to one of the SUVs where Turk Barrett is explaining he never liked those borscht-eaten bastards because <laughs> they paid S13 for S14 work. <laughs> Matt, as he's counting his Benjamins. Uh, You're counting Vlad the S's while he's counting his Bennies. I am. But uh, Vladdy did offer a cool million if uh, he gave up Wes's boy, to which Wes tells him that Turk Barrett is alive because he made the right decision. A polite way of saying, no, you're not getting more money. Gentlemen being gentlemen, even... Uh, even in, in the lower elements here of the criminal world. But Barrett wants to know, you know, why plant the mask? And Wesley tells him that uh, they had to blow him up here, that they had to have time to arrange and get him off balance, that um, Barrett has mad respect for the smart move, um, that they know where to find him if they need anything else. Cut to Sergey and Vladimir uh, still alive. Vladimir is hurt, but he will live, and he will live to see Fisk and the masked man pay. Our masked man jumps them. He says this is for Claire, and as he pummels them, he's caught off guard. Maybe in the emotional aspect here, the cops come up, they get the drop on them, and uh, we end our episode with him raising his hands. Indeed, apparently surrounded and uh, certainly quite the uh, quite the little uh, teaser there to end the entire episode. 
Objection, Your Honor. He's badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, let's start with Vladimir. Uh, clearly, the the angry driving force of the episode, uh, out for revenge. And uh, I think to a large degree, a rather sympathetic uh, villain in this episode, given that, that, that what's happened to his brother is so outside the confines of, of even the rough and tumble world that they've been operating in. Uh, even when you add in the, the fact that he thinks it is this masked man, uh, it's just so, you know, what has happened to his brother, to his flesh and blood uh, is just so brutal that um, I, I think we understand Vladimir a little bit more after all of this. It's almost unfair putting him in our defendant's section. He kind of feels like a victim. The loss of his brother, a constant victim of, uh, you know, circumstances which appear one way, but we know in reality are the other. Um, And then pummeled at the end of the episode, uh, assuming he's still alive here, um, you know, with the masked man and um you know they're gonna wind up in police custody yeah uh things not going well for vladimir it's it's to the credit of the show that even this awful guy who we've seen doing uh, or at least planning such awful things that we really do feel bad for him it you know it it, it adds a wonderful shading and and third dimension to these characters well, when we get Wesley come to him at the, you know, early stages of the episode and, you know, hey, your brother accepted the deal. Oh, where is he? Did I say something? You know, we, we go from sympathetic to, to downright unctuous and, and snake-like. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people have come to love about Wesley. And then that he's this, you know, personal assistant picking out wine and you know, planting evidence and meeting with Turk Barrett at the end there. And, you know, just uh, deliciously, deliciously performed by uh, Toby Leonard Moore. It's such an interesting and fulfilling kind of uh, dramatic role that he plays, both the the kind of high up man of culture and power, but also sycophantic to the real head. Uh, I don't know why that's kind of so satisfying where we kind of, love to love to hate him you know he's not kind of gleefully bad he certainly didn't smash any heads and doors uh but there's just something where you know you you don't fully embrace him as a sympathetic character because he's probably the smartest of the baddies that we've seen through these five episodes um but boy if you don't enjoy having him on screen well we get this you know tentatively calling them this crime council if you will uh, scene in the garage as they're hosing down the uh, the SUV and we reunite Mr. Leland and Madame Gao and Mr. Nobu along with Wesley and, and Fisk and their performance goes to the next level past their initial introduction you know Leland with the wisecracks, Gao with the laughter and, and Mr. Nobu breaks character and brings up this point that goes unresolved in the episode with Fisk about him and the people he represents. Pete, your comment when we sat down to uh, start recording this episode almost 108 uh, or an hour and eight minutes ago, rather, uh, was that these episodes are so incredibly dense. And the fact that we have just this wonderful villain at the top 
with uh, with Fisk, and then you know a very interesting assistant in the form of Wesley. But we still mine deep with characters like Leland and Gao and Nobu, and we still are sitting here five episodes in. You know, we're we're fast approaching a middle point to this, um, but there still is the 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 thirst on my end. I'm sure on your end, and I'm sure on the viewers' end to find out more about Leland and Gao and Nobu. Is it going to be flashback? Is it going to be getting into Gao's? You know the particular uh, particulars of Gal's operation and why everyone is blind, and more about Nobu. And it, it's it's so wonderful that it's not it's not even a case of the show kind of building in padding so it can whatever stretch things out to thirteen episodes. It's just so incredibly rich and so incredibly dense. It's the guys that you can't necessarily see coming. So when we find. Piotr, you know, one of these other Russian thugs in police custody, and he's ready to give them up that um, Blake and Hoffman, these dirty cops, turn on him after, you know, the one assaults the other to make it look real. And that just really well blocked scene within the 15 precinct was uh, really, really effective and atmospheric there was just something about piotr from the first moment when i first heard his name i just i just hated the character hated him <laughs> and i was so glad to see that even though they're dirty cops they just just did what needed to be done to old piotr there well he's he's spoiled a name matt well still i don't know there was just i don't know there's just something about piotr i was glad to see him gone r.i.p <laughs> spoiler piotr <laughs> that's true that's true Although, Pete, can we then extend that to this is what happens to people who spoil? Well, uh, in the crime world, Matt, they're called snitches. But <laughs> we, we function on a far more civilized plane. So, Long-time yeah. listeners will know. Uh, perhaps, perhaps our pal Beth tried to play the role here of uh, Detectives Blake and Hoffman. But that's a tale for another story. Um. And then I, I love the introduction of the uh, the Marcy character at Lamin and Zach and just somebody that Foggy knew from the past and how she tries to strong arm him and how he gets her back and really wins us over with, you know, his his continued development as a lawyer here. You know, Matt, what do you think about Marcy Stahl? You know, if you're going to have what I would assume would be a, a, a minor, maybe one shot, maybe even one scene character like Marcy was, you know, if she's going to be one dimensional, make her fully one dimensional. And by that, I mean, if she's going to be a soulless lawyer, go for it. Go for it in her visual presentation in the fact that, you know, she's fighting, fighting, fighting for the client. And then as soon as the fight is over, it's kind of back to ah you know what foggy really didn't mean that you know we had some good times it's just if she's going to be an inauthentic human being as a real character go for it and i'm so glad that they do and lastly what can you not say about fisk between him moving forward ever so delicately with vanessa laying cards on the table here and then ending with blowing half of hell's kitchen up to eliminate he thinks this russian threat you know his presence has never been stronger than ever in an episode true and i think that it's interesting to to ponder that uh, vanessa might be 
almost a proxy for the audience insofar as that we're being tugged towards Fisk. Um, it's such destruction that she is first looking on and, you know, to see multiple explosions in New York City, there's certainly, you know, an attempt there uh, subtly perhaps at, at overtones of the past and whatnot. But when he just hammers the point home and says the people who, who were involved in that kidnapping of the boy, they did this and now they're not a threat anymore, there really is this moment where you say, huh, I as the viewer have more insight maybe than any of these individual characters as to what's going on. It probably was just bad people who died here. Was there a net loss beyond some sort of, you know, objective, you know, it's human life? Like, was bad really done, question mark? And... And Fisk is asking some really uh, interesting questions in that regard as we as we move forward through the series. Well, given that uh, Mrs. Cardenas's apartment got uh, even more shaken up than ever, I would fall squarely on the side of bad being done. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss them off the record theories you be the judge matt these bombings and uh that they were using one of madame gao's uh mules to do this is there a connection between what her organization makes and these explosions I don't think directly. I think that, you know, whether it's, I assume, heroin, um, it, th- that is what she is making. Uh, I think that she was probably um, okay with sending out four runners who would die for the cause. Clearly, the runners themselves were prepared to, to push the buttons uh, individually. I just kind of read it as they knew they were leaving there with C4 or dynamite or whatever one would use in a situation like this. And she was okay um, sacrificing those four runners. Um, I was not, I wasn't going as far as, you know, and they also make explosives, although it certainly is possible. Well, her pop rock empire here, you know, uh, blowing up with the introduction of some, uh, some Diet Coke, it, it's going to be hard to, uh, to recover. <laughs> That is true. Pete, I got one for you. There's the very, very clear line uh, when uh, Vanessa concludes, uh, based on Fisk's uh, calming words, that no gun is needed. By his side, she will be safe. I then wrote down in my notes, again, I totally spoiler-free for each episode, prediction she will die at his side. (laughs) Um, Are you asking me? Well, I guess I'm not. It it wouldn't behoove me to ask you. I guess that's why I bring it up. I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't know what to say to you other than, "Hey, that seemed to me to be slightly heavy-handed." Kind of like, "Look, I, you know, look, people make a prediction, um, and, and certainly a moment of note." We don't know if the gun is loaded. It's certainly a loaded line. Ooh, yes. Pete, one last thing on my list here: Tully, the evil landlord, uh, despite his connections, of course, to his accountant brother from another movie um will we see him as, as a character show up in this show maybe join the crime council what do you think is any uh is there any future there for tully senor tully no no well okay <laughs> <laughs> 
we've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, uh, a couple episodes ago, we had had a discussion involving the nature of uh, what one can confess to a priest, the seal of confessional, etc. We kind of had wondered it aloud. Uh, and we, we got some thoughts from Beth, who goes by Thistlethorn on Twitter. That's with an E at the end of Thistlethorn. Uh, and here is what Beth had to tell us. A priest cannot repeat anything told to him as part of a confession, but confession and reconciliation happen after the sin is committed, not before. Therefore, Matt could not go to confession before beating the crap out of all those people. <laughs> you cannot presume forgiveness for a sin not yet committed. The Code of Canon Law states the sacramental seal is in, uh, inviolable. Therefore, it is absolutely forbidden for a confessor to betray in any way a penitent in the words, uh, penitent in words or any other manner, uh, and for any reason. Violation of the seal of confession results in immediate excommunication of the priest. Beth goes on to say, in case of murder, the priest cannot break the seal of confessional. Uh, he would have to die first. He can, however, report the incident to his bishop which is pointless because many penitents confess in anonymity. That means that the priest doesn't see them, so even if the priest could break the seal, it would be pointless and useless to law enforcement agencies. There's no absolution if the person is not repentant, even in an extreme case. The penance would be to turn oneself into the authorities. And Beth concludes by saying most societies respect the, the priest's seal, Due to the overall benefits of the confessional, there have been numerous attempts to get this overthrown in the courts, but I, Beth says, haven't followed that, so I don't know how this works in each country. So uh, some uh, religious musings there from, uh, from Beth. It certainly makes sense, and you know, I wasn't proposing that we, uh, we go research it or whatever. There are always exceptions to any rule. Um, you know, certainly the idea about confessing what they're going to do beforehand and then doing it would extend just like a psychologist, uh, that type of thing. But, you know, I have to imagine that occasionally, you know, bring up the point about telling the bishop that, you know, somebody has a crime so dastardly, you know, uh, that, that somewhere much like in the world where podcasting about a, a message gets sent somehow, other people dispense justice, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe a, a priest, uh, street level, uh, hero we could, we could work on here, you know, at any rate, Pete, thanks again to Beth, by the way, different Beth than the villainous Beth from many years ago, but, uh, thank you. Thank you. This Beth, uh, for that wonderful insight and, uh, for doing the research for us. We're thankful to that other Beth, too. <laughs> uh, Matt, another way that uh, listeners can uh, interact and uh, get their words on the podcast here is to go to iTunes and leave us a review, either for the Daredevil podcast or the Pop Culture podcast. Uh, we've been spacing them out here a little bit throughout the course of these episodes. Next one we have is from Captain Drew. And the headline is ABC, another bad creation, not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good, five stars. And he writes, these two guys rock at podcast, and now they add one of my childhood favorites to their list of awesomeness. Make mine Marvel and Fantastic Geek. Wow, definitely uh, 
so nice to hear such enthusiasm and uh it's amazing this wellspring of marvel that uh, that's giving us so much sometimes it feels like just enough uh to podcast i I hope it's not pick up Agent Carter and do S.H.I.E.L.D. spinoff and do the new other Marvel show because then we will truly die. But so far, <laughs> so far it's a ton of fun even though we're, we're swimming a bit faster than we did in the past. But Pete, the most cherished people are those who metaphorically swim with you on Twitter. How can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J. Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,633 followers. Can't be wrong. How very impressive indeed. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a P-H on the dot com, the Gmail, and the Twitter. And Pete, there still is one more popular way. Yes, facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH as well. All one word. Like us, be involved there, and get just another glimpse at uh, what we do. Well, with that, Pete, I will say to all our listeners put your hands up, you're surrounded, and give you the final word. So I don't need the gun. Oh,